Hello. There we go. Got it. Well, this morning I'm bringing you the second uh, truth that friends embrace um, that we believe in in uh, a series of eight. And the one I'm bringing you this morning is Jesus is absolutely essential. Now, you know, when, when we talk about Jesus and uh, scripture, we're going to hear truths that we've always heard before because God's truth is steadfast and it's pure and it's eternal. So there are going to be truths you hear this morning that you've already heard before and probably in the rest of the series as well. I want to encourage you then to really have a fresh hearing going on today. Listen freshly to an old truth that you may know because every truth, every time we hear the truth, it nourishes our spirit. So, um, when you hear the word essential, what do you think about? I think you think about uh, whatever your understanding is of that word. But I, I thought I'll look in the dictionary and, and see what it says. And here's what, how the word essential is defined. It is necessary to continue to exist. It is constituting the intrinsic nature of something that is the true inborn nature of something. And it is absolute, perfect, and pure. Now, what a great definition of Jesus, right? We need Jesus to continue to exist. Jesus is the perfect, intrinsic nature of God. And we know that Jesus is absolute, perfect, and pure. That's one reason we need Jesus. Think about what's essential to you. I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, let me see. Is a house essential to us? No. I lived in a tent in a Land Rover for a year, loved every minute of it. I really did. And it was only Jesus that made me stop living that way when I came to know him. So then, well, what else could it be? Is it money? Oh, wait a minute. There's a lot of people in this world that don't use money. They barter. They trade one thing for another thing, but it's not just money. Uh, could it be a car? Is car essential? Oh, I don't think so. You just asked Charlotte. Of course not essential. Charlotte gets around just fine. How about clothing? Is clothing essential? Well, maybe if you lived in Alaska, you'd think clothing is essential. But if you live near the equator, not so much. And there's a lot of cultures that just use a, a piece of fabric to wrap themselves, and some cultures that barely have anything at all covering themselves. So let me see, what else could be essential? I mean, we have to have essential things to live by, right? Gosh, do we need food? Well, for 40 days or so, you could go without it. But then the body needs food to keep on going. Do we need water? Well, for about five days or so, you can go without water. But then you really need water to keep on going. Do you need air? Well, for a few minutes, probably not, but then you better take a breath of air if you want to keep existing. That's all for the body, right? The body can't continue without these things. But is that really essential? Well, let's see now. What did God say? God said in Jeremiah 1.5, 
that God knew us before we even formed in the world. Now the world says we're dead when the body gives out and we shut our eyes for the last time. Ah, but that's not what scripture says. Scripture tells us that we are dead when we're apart from our relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus himself says that, talking to the Pharisees and scribes, that they are tombs which have been whitewashed, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and everything impure. They are absolutely dead without the Messiah. So, gosh, what is life? Well, you know, in the Western world, we tend to think that life comes about sometime when that little thing is in the womb, right? Different stages of development in the womb are defined by different cultures in the West. Um, scientifically, we know that we feel, believe anyway, that life starts when the sperm and the egg join together and boom, they create life. But golly, what does scripture say? Scripture says that uh, Jesus is life. That's what scripture says, because what did Jesus say he was? He says, I am life. So that's what true life is. True life is Christ Jesus in our lives as we have a relationship with him. So as believers, we have a pretty clear understanding um, of human beings. We know that God formed Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground. But when he formed Adam out of that dust, did he have life yet? No, because Genesis 2-7 tells us that God breathed life into that man. And it is the breath of God that gave him life. And that breath of God is the spirit of life as a person becomes a living being. John 14, 6 says, Jesus is life. <clears throat> and in John 5, 24, it says that those who believe in and trust in God who sent Jesus have eternal life. They have already passed out of death into the life eternal right now. Ooh, let me repeat that. Those who believe in and trust in God now have eternal life right now. That's pretty off-field thought to have. So let's put it all together. The only absolute essential for any life of a believer and really anybody on this earth is the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, Christ Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the Father who sent Jesus to set his foot on the earth as God in human form. And it is in him and through him that we have true life now, an everlasting life that continues after our earthly death. Why is Jesus the only essential? Well, let's kind of review a little bit about what most of us know probably. Jesus came into the world as God in a human form because God so loved the world and everyone in it. <clears throat> because of sin, humans separated from God doesn't mean that God wasn't always there and isn't always there because he is always here, but we choose and they chose not to have a relationship with him. 
And because God cannot look upon sin, much less have a personal relationship with sin, Jesus chose to pay the price himself in order for all of us to have that personal, intimate love relationship with God, with the people he created. And the way that God chose was that the Father sent the Son, Christ Jesus, to take upon the sin of the world, past, present, and future, to open the door for us to have that personal, intimate love relationship with him. Jesus came and was executed for the sins of all humankind once and for all. Now, the three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the details of this extraordinary event when it happened. And I thought, hmm, let's look at those details, even as little as they're given. As Jesus hung upon the cross, taking all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, upon himself, all the land was developed, enveloped by darkness. Though it was about noontime, the sun's light faded and stopped shining, and it became dark, a darkness that lasted for three hours. Now, can you imagine what that was like? There was no sun. There was no light at all. It was all dark for three hours all over the land. Now, it's kind of hard for us to imagine what it would be like with no light, okay? Because no matter what time of day or night it is, there's always some form of light. Imagine if it was just all, go lock yourself in a closet. Imagine if it was so dark for three hours. I mean, people must have been very scared and confused about all that. What was happening? And at the end of three hours, when Jesus took his last breath, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook so violently that rocks were split and tombs were opened. There was a massive earthquake, a violent, violent shaking of the earth. Now, we have 5.2. You don't hear much more beyond a 7.0 or 8.0 earthquake in the world. Can you imagine if the earth shook so violently that rocks split open and tombs opened up? That must have been quite an event for the people that were there. And I'm sure they were very afraid at the time, not understanding what was going on. And then, those who had fallen into the sleep of death were raised to life. And they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many people. How amazing and even a little scary that might have been to see somebody that you know has already died. I mean, that was really a remarkable event when you think about the details. And then Jesus himself was raised on the first, third day of his death, fulfilling his role as the way, the truth, and life. And he walked the earth again in a heavenly body, appearing to Peter and the other in uh, disciples. He appeared to 500 believers all at one time, and he appeared to James and the apostles. Why? Because there needed to be a witness to those who believed in him that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that they have been waiting for so long. And after 40 days, he ascended to the Father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit came down to inhabit all believers in Christ. Oh, did you hear that? 
the Holy Spirit inhabits all believers in Christ. He lives here right inside of us. Wow. It wasn't meant for this them. It's meant for everyone. So the price was paid, and we all now have the opportunity to have a personal, intimate relationship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know, in Revelation 3.20, it says that Christ Jesus says himself that he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and fellowship with that person. So all of us who are believers have heard and opened the door, and he continues to stand and knock at the door of the lives of those who don't know him. So if there is anyone that doesn't have a relationship with Christ, listen because he's knocking on the door of your heart. He's calling to you. So before we entered into a personal relationship with, with Christ Jesus, we lived our life according to our own human nature. That means uh, we were satisfying ourselves above others. We had what we wanted, when we wanted, where we wanted, how we wanted. It really didn't make any justice as long as we got what we wanted. And even though Adam and Eve were created to have that special relationship with God, which they experienced over a period of time in the Garden of Eden, they too ultimately made the choice to fulfill the desire of being more like God. And they committed the sin, and they paid a huge price. Because not only were they separated from God, and banished from the Garden of Eden. But when they started having children and had a family, they experienced this sin blazing in their family relationship so powerfully that their first son, Cain, killed their next son, Abel. And they died themselves in the face of the earth. I've always thought about that. The very first family, the first son killed the next son because of their desire to be like God. That's not what God designed for them. That's what they chose to do. So as descendants of Adam and Eve, we have that same human nature. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 48 to 49, it states that those who are made of the dust are like him who was first made of dust, Adam, earthly-minded, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, heavenly-minded. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. So it is only through the saving relationship with Jesus Christ that we may bear the image of heaven. So listen with that said. We can be heavenly-minded right now. We can be like Jesus right now. Wow, what an off-field thought that one is. And you know, a couple weeks ago, Eric uh, talked about God puts a spark inside of every person that he has created when he created them. And when we choose not to have God as part of our life, there's this big kind of hole or void in our heart where that little spark lays dormant. And the only thing that can fill that hole or void is God himself. He's the one that reignites that spark when he redeems us. 
And I can remember very well when the Lord reignited me. I really did feel like for the first time in my life that this void or this hole in my heart was filled and I felt like a whole person for the first time in my life. And then I realized Jesus was absolutely essential to my whole being. When that spark was reignited, it created a passion for the Lord that could not be quenched. So we see that Jesus is absolutely essential in our lives if we desire to have an intimate relationship with God. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, no therapy, nothing else this world offers that can change our human nature. It is only through the intimate relationship with Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he can transform us into being more and more like him created in him, his image and likeness. And we, as we surrender ourselves to the Lord, the Holy Spirit can come in and cleanse us and lead us and guide us, transforming us along that path of life until we bear that heavenly nature. And however long we have on this earthly life, in this earth on our life, it is to, to transform us more and more to that heavenly nature so we're prepared to really enjoy heaven the way God intends us to. And until we recognize that Jesus is absolutely essential in our lives, we will continue to make choices on our own understanding rather than through the Holy Spirit. One of the basic things that set friends apart from the traditional church was that they really truly believed that Jesus Christ was absolutely essential for their lives. There was no other way to have a vibrant relationship with God. So I want to give us a little history lesson here for those of you that are not really uh, familiar with friends. George Fox, who was a founder of Friends, sought a deeper relationship with God than what he was experiencing in the Christian world all around him. This was in the 17th century. He was getting really discouraged, but when he was 19 years old and seeking and seeking and seeking, this little inner voice spoke to him. Now, he was really frustrated with seeing Christians around him uh, drinking. That was the issue that, that uh, came to him. I mean, people would get drunk and they go to church the next day, and he said, this isn't the way God meant us to live. And so that little inner voice was telling him to stay away from all of that. Don't go there. Stay away from that life. And so he was getting kind of depressed and confused and didn't know what to do, so he left his hometown and he went down to London and looking for an answer. And he rented a room and he stayed there alone all by himself in that room, and he took walks in the countryside all by himself, looking out, seeking, asking, what is this all about? And he went back home again, not with the answer yet, but he had a little more understanding, and, and he started talking with the local clergyman, and they got into a big disagreement about religious matters, and so he left again. And he continued traveling around England, going to visit various religious communities, looking and seeking for the answer that he needed. He fervently studied scripture. He was very well read in scripture. And slowly those spiritual beliefs began to take shape. <clears throat> and then he reached a point 
where all hope was gone. Now, all of us have been there where we get a little depressed and confused. And that's where he was at his lowest point. And all of a sudden, the inner voice said to him, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to your condition. And his heart leapt for joy. The Lord revealed that there was no human being who could help him with his spiritual condition. Christ Jesus was the only answer. Jesus was absolutely essential to his spiritual growth. Christ was to be above all others in his life, enlightening him, giving him grace, giving him his faith and his power so that Christ Jesus alone would be glorified. And when God did his work in Mr. Fox's life, nothing and no one could stop it. God would have his way. So in the mid-1640s, uh, George Fox came to experience and share with others that it was the Holy Spirit who was essential <clears throat> excuse me, to understand the scriptures, not formal education and theologi theological studies. If it was true that the spiritual, if, the, if there was a true spiritual conversion of someone, rituals were not necessary to them. And since the Holy Spirit gives the qualifications to people to minister, women and children can minister as the Holy Spirit leads. And he believed that that same inner spirit would guide faithful believers, not priests or some strict, sometimes legalistic reading of the scriptures. He also made no distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For him, God was the three in one in every way. And he never used the phrase, word of God for scripture, because Jesus is the word of God. And the worship time together as friends was a silent worship that opened up the heart to the inner spirit, to the Holy Spirit, communing with God. So true communion for friends is the quiet, personal communion with God, just as true baptism is simply being immersed in the Holy Spirit being cleansed and purified and transformed through that time with God. He was not interested in starting a new denomination. He was simply passionate about the understanding about God and the simplicities of his ways. He soon shared with others that Jesus was the answer. He was the absolutely essential need that everyone has in order to follow God in the right way. And people started flocking around him. Many others began to share that same belief in friends. The Society of Friends was born. And while he was very well grounded in scripture, it wasn't his sharing of the scripture that attracted people. It was his intense personal experience that he shared with others that led them also to that same personal intimate love relationship with Christ. He and the other friends were bold in their passion for God. And this they campaigned against the sin they saw around themselves. Now let's think back to the 17th century. I'm not going through a litany of the history of the world at that time. But I can tell you that that was a revolutionary idea in that whole Christian world. The idea that someone did not need ceremonies, sacraments, special worship uh, services or priests or elders to tell them what scriptures say 
absolutely was ludicrous to that world. Actually, it was outright blasphemy. A simple belief and trust in Christ Jesus was unheard of. And frankly, it was unacceptable. Prayer, reading the scriptures for yourself, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach through the Bible, obeying all that scripture declares, and a true loving fellowship with other believers was like blasphemy to the Christian world. It challenged that traditional church in every way. But just as George Fox and his fellow friends um, began sharing their message and testimonies, people started leaving that traditional church and coming into the friends' ways of worship. People were hungering and thirsting after the living God. Now, the traditional church found friends to be very, very threatening to them. And everywhere friends went throughout the world, they were persecuted, most of all in Americans. And I found that very ironic that the Puritans who came to the United to America, not the United States yet, who came to America for freedom of religion, decided that the freedom was, guess what, for them to choose what that is. And that, that persecution led to the imprisonment for many, many friends, and some of them were even uh, executed uh, because of their walk with God. It was declared a heresy. It was uh, in, the, in America that that happened, where they were killed for their beliefs. Now, George Fox found himself in prison several times, and in 1650, at a court in Derby, England, where he was being imprisoned for blasphemy, a judge mocked George Fox's exhortation to tremble at the word. And he called him and his followers Quakers. And that's how our historic name has come about, because we were seen to tremble at the word of God. And I think that's wonderful that we tremble at the word of God. When George Fox refused to take up arms against others for any reason, he was sent to prison. And that prison sentence was doubled. When he refused to swear an oath and allegiance to the crown or to anyone else, he was sent to prison. So his refusal to take up arms against others and the refusal to swear oaths of any kind became part of the friend's distinctives out of his own experience. Now, many friends had already emigrated to North America uh, in the early establishment of the colonies here. So George and Martha Fox came to North America in 1671, stayed for two years, and then went back to England where he died in 1691. So the early friends were diligent and effective in sharing their faith in Christ Jesus when they came to America. They ministered to the Native Americans, guiding many, many into the kingdom of God and defending their rights when no one else would, would even have anything to do with them. And during the early um, and mid-1700s, there was a huge persecution of Christians by name, but especially true believers in Europe. And they came, uh, uh, immigrants came by the thousands upon thousands to America to find uh, freedom. William Penn had gone and encouraged people to come to America. And so there was this great migration of true believers coming in. 
And many were friends already, and many became friends um, after their arrival. And by the time of the establishment of the Constitution of the United States, Quakers were the largest Protestant denomination in this country. They were 200, about 250,000 strong. Quakers were signers of the Declaration of Independence. Um, they were governors of some of the colonies. And they were very, very influential in the founding of this nation. And by 1790, which was the first US sentence in this country, there was no Quaker in America that owned a slave. Their passion for Christ as being absolutely essential to their lives ignited this great movement in the United States, which carried through the Civil War. And during the Revolutionary and Civil War, many friends lost their land, their homes, and their livelihood because of their refusal to take up arms and go into battle. And even when you could pay someone to take your place, most friends would not do that because they didn't want to cause other people to take up arms and go into battle. They firmly believed they were to follow Jesus' command, love your enemies. And that commitment to Christ and to the scriptures cost them greatly. Same thing happened in Civil War. However, the government finally passed a law which allowed friends uh, to serve in the military as conscientious objectors, serving in capacities that did not cause them to take up arms. And that conscientious objection is still part of the military today for those who refuse to take up arms against other people. And because Quakers opposed uh, slavery vehemently, they were essential in establishing the Underground Railroad, where escaping slaves from the southern states could go into the northern states into freedom through the hidden escape routes set up by Quakers. And but then after the Civil War, the Friends went into a quiet period. They just gathered together, ministered to one another, and fell away from that evangelistic heritage. As a Quaker, it's, just, it's not just that we do not practice rituals or that we do not raise arms against others or that we see men and women as equal ministers in church or that silence in worship is golden. What is so important about our friends' heritage is the quality of their faith and the importance of the true distinctives they lived. Their faith was and is centered on Christ Jesus. They were wholly independent on the Holy Spirit to guide them in that faith, and they were passionate about their faith and open it to sharing it. They weren't timid or frightened about sharing it. There was this wonderful testimony I read of a, of a farmer in Pennsylvania, a Quaker. And he wrote that when he saw anyone passing by his farm, he would run out to greet him. And the first thing they do is said, do you know Jesus? Oh, I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Friends live their lives not for themselves, but for the glory and for the honor of God. And our challenge as present-day friends is to not be quiet about our faith. Our challenge is to, to understand this wonderful gift we have of Jesus Christ. We need to be passionate about knowing that Jesus is absolutely necessary to our life. We center our faith fully on Christ and we 100% believe the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us through all the paths of life. And we hold on to our core belief. We cannot be timid anymore. 
We must have faith in our own personal testimonies and the scriptures and share that boldly and passionately. When people hear how you experience Christ, it is far more powerful than relating stories from the Bible. Do you know, if you read a little comment about a, mov you know, about a movie or a book or a song or even a recipe, well, that's interesting. Wow, if someone comes and tells you, this movie was so great, or this book you must read, or wow, this food was really wonderful, aren't you far more likely to even at least look into it and to seek it out? Of course, because it's your personal testimony. Now, I learned this lesson early in my Christian life through a really powerful experience in my life. As part of a, a local church in, um, in an evangelistic crusade, in Abidjan, which is the capital of Ivory Coast, I really felt led by the Holy Spirit to go down through the red light district of the city where the prostitutes are. And I wanted to share the truth and the love of Jesus from my own personal experience. Now they had, you know, a big, really long building with rooms were kind of like monk cells or just, you know, an individual room. And they had little red lights out and when someone was busy, the light was off and when someone was available, the light was on. And the women would stand out in front of their doors. And so I had this, you know, audience here standing out in front of their doors in the middle of the day uh, where they're not too busy. And uh, so I went up and I didn't tell them about how much they needed God or any of that. I simply shared with them how Jesus lifted me up out of my darkness into the warmth of his love. I shared with them how much God really loved them. I shared that Jesus is life itself and that Jesus changed my life. Well, that night when I returned to the local church for the praise meeting, more of these women showed up than had ever showed up before. And some even entered into the kingdom of God through Jesus. Why was it a little bit of a success? Because people are hungering and thirsting after a personal relationship with God, even when they don't know it. They're still seeking. And these women didn't want to hear about God. They wanted to know who he was. They wanted to hear how he can change a life. They wanted to hear how they could meet him personally so that their lives would be changed. So how you live and share your testimonies of Christ Jesus in your life is how the Holy Spirit is going to draw people to Jesus. Through your personal testimonies of Jesus, Others are going to begin to hear him knocking on the door of their hearts. We cannot remain in the quiet period and honor and glorify God. We must do what he's asked us to do, share about Jesus Christ, and allow many people to enter into the kingdom of God. Early friends understood very well that our earthly life was temporary, and it was a life of Christ in each person that was the only true life and it was an eternal life. It is only when each of us truly believes that Christ Jesus is absolutely essential to our life that our spark becomes a blazing fire, a blaze for Jesus and for his kingdom. And when we share that truth and that passion, that true love of God, that spark is set ablaze in others as they come into that life with Christ with Jesus. So this is our challenge. 
making Jesus Christ known to others through sharing the witness of our lives that Christ Jesus is absolutely essential for life itself, the true everlasting life. Let's just close with a word of prayer here. Dear Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you are the only being essential for us. Jesus, you are the absolutely essential person to have in our lives. We thank you, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Through you, we have this amazing, amazing relationship that changes us to become more and more like you. So we pray, Lord, that you will um, not just reignite our flame, but you know, pour some, whatever the word is, gasoline upon it. Make it blaze high. Make it light shine everywhere, Lord. Embolden us with passion for you to share who you are with others, using our own personal testimonies like the early friends did that will draw people to Christ. We thank you and praise you for this morning together, and we just ask that you would burn your truths into our hearts and minds. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, you do have these four questions that um, I wrote out just to kind of um, motivate you for next week's worship, open worship service. You don't have to answer any of these questions. Just spend a little time with the Lord and let the Holy Spirit uh, give you what he wants you to share with us.